The following podcast explores xenophobia, racism, discrimination, and some political commentary. The views expressed are my own personal opinions and are based on sources cited on the show notes and also on the podcast website. Do check out the reference links for further reading. Any misinterpretation of facts is unintentional and without malice. Hello and welcome to yet another awesome episode of Living It Up in Lion City, a podcast about life in Singapore where we talk about what's happening on this little red dot we call home. This episode is the much-awaited part two of the series Understanding Xenophobia in Singapore, where I'll be covering the nature and extent of the resentment locals have towards foreigners in Singapore. It has been a long, long, long time coming, and the coronavirus situation has made things a little more interesting, shall we say when it comes to conversations around xenophobia. Firstly, I want to thank all of you who listened to the first part of this podcast series and who have given me amazing feedback. I'm really glad you enjoyed it, and I really appreciate the suggestions some of you made. Before I go ahead, I want to re-emphasize what this episode is about. It's about understanding the reasons behind the discomfort over foreigners. In a country that is consistently labeled as multicultural, racially harmonious, and welcoming, A lot of foreigners find it jarring to see the local manifestations of xenophobia once they arrive here, which doesn't get talked about as much. For my foreigner friends listening to this podcast, I hope this episode will give you some clues to why there's a discomfort over foreigners. If you wondered why a lot of expat FB groups are set to private and invite only, or why people here rely on cultural stereotypes like a crutch, you might find some answers here. For my Singaporean friends who are listening to this podcast, please understand that this isn't meant to be some holier-than-thou critique of Singaporean society. I have had the pleasure of being friends with amazing Singaporeans who have made me feel welcome and included, and my experiences have been mostly positive. But I know way too many people have felt otherwise. As I mentioned earlier, I know that Singaporeans are not xenophobic for the most part, but xenophobia is normalized in Singaporean society, which can be seen in regular conversations. Just look at how normal it is to talk shit about people from mainland China. The normalization is also seen in the way social decisions are made here. Parental discrimination is a prime example of this. I hope I'm being fair in portraying the situation on the ground. Please let me know if you feel otherwise. If you haven't listened to the first episode in the series yet, please do, because we will be referring to it a lot in this current one. It's titled Understanding Xenophobia in Singapore Part 1, The History of Immigration and the Events that Built Up the Anti-Foreigner Narrative. I cover some historical context and I urge you to listen to that episode before continuing with this one. Alright, those of you who have listened to the last episode, let's move on to Part 2. Enjoy the episode, folks. The COVID-19 coronavirus crisis has thrown xenophobia into sharp relief the world over. People of Asian ethnicity are being targeted over purported fears over the coronavirus, but mostly because of prior prejudices. Harassment is happening on the streets, shops are being vandalized, protests are happening on the ground demanding that foreigners leave the country. Singaporean students were targeted in the UK and in Australia recently simply for being Asian. 
Similar sentiments exist in Singapore, albeit without violence. While it's mostly hate online, there have been a few instances that have bled into real life. The idea that Singapore is a tolerant society, regardless of race and origin, is being challenged constantly in light of the many, many incidents during this time which have exposed the latent prejudices locals have towards foreigners. Anyone living here in Singapore long enough would know of how normal it is to hate on PRC folks for being rude, scummy, dirty, etc. In fact, when COVID-19 first broke out in Singapore, the online consensus was to keep the Chinese out. And while the government's reluctance to shut down all travel from China was cause for valid criticism, a lot of that online reaction wasn't just for practical reasons like containing the virus. A lot of it was driven by hate and just wanting mainland Chinese to go back and stay back because of prior prejudice. There has also been the ongoing hatred of Indian citizens living in Singapore, who are accused of not integrating, stealing all the jobs from deserving locals, and somehow taking advantage of the system. This anger fueled protests to deport all Indian nationals back in November 2019, and more recently, instances of people of Indian origin flouting social distancing rules get a disproportionate amount of hate online, as well as being accosted with taunts to go back to their country. Which is ironic because the two women in question were Singaporean, but that didn't stop the mob, both on the internet and in real, from questioning their Singaporeanness, implicitly using their skin color and their bad behavior as clear markers of their foreignness. At the same time, there has been overwhelming support for the migrant workers in Singapore, a section of society often invisible in common discourse, which is now the hardest hit community in this pandemic. A lot of my Singaporean friends have initiated programs and pitched in to help out the vulnerable community during this COVID-19 crisis. Dialogue is happening on national media, in social media, among people, about the plight of migrant workers more than I'd ever seen five years ago and which was non-existent when I first arrived nine years ago. Also a month ago, when Malaysia shut down its borders, effectively stranding 300,000 Malaysians working on this side of the border, Many Singaporeans, my friends included, rose to the occasion opening their homes for their Malaysian brothers and sisters in a show of solidarity and love for their neighbors. We're seeing acts of hateful prejudice and at the same time acts of heartwarming kindness. So what gives? This brings us to the key question. What is the extent of xenophobia in Singapore? After I posted the first episode, I got a comment from a friend sta who stated that the xenophobia in Singapore is nowhere close to what we see elsewhere. And he's right. But by what metric? The issue that I find about conversations around xenophobia is that people apply different definitions to it. For some folks, xenophobia is an insensitive comment or a disdainful look on the street. For others, it's getting their head bashed in for no other reason than looking different. Some would say that Singapore is not xenophobic because there are no overt hate crimes. Some others would say that Singapore is indeed xenophobic because of the obvious discrimination along the lines of ethnic and national identities. Both sides can argue about it for years simply because their definitions of xenophobia are very, very different. The framing of xenophobia is very dependent on a country-specific situation. We could say that Singapore is not xenophobic because folks don't get their skull cracked on the pavement or shot inside a restaurant in broad daylight, but I would be naive and lying if I claimed that it doesn't exist. So let's put a frame to what xenophobia in Singapore is like, shall we? Let's define the boundaries, and then we can have a much better understanding of the issue. 
I believe we can define the boundaries of the Singaporean flavor of xenophobia with a few questions like, number one, does the xenophobia in Singapore result in physical harm or violence? The answer is a resounding no. But does xenophobia in Singapore result in harassment and cyberbullying? It's a resounding yes. Are Singaporeans overtly xenophobic? For the most part, no. But does Singaporean society normalize xenophobia? For the most part, yes. Should you expect to deal with local prejudice in your daily life? Of course not. But should you expect local prejudice to affect your quality of life in some major aspects like finding a place to rent? Of course, yes. So how exactly do we categorize the Singaporean flavor of xenophobia? I would say that in real life, there's no fear of injury. But there's a lot of latent prejudice simmering under the surface which is reserved for certain groups. Some groups can live their lives in Singapore seeing nothing but warm, welcoming faces, while other communities are greeted with suspicion, derision, and frequently anger. I would also say that there is a pervasive sense of discomfort over the number of foreigners in general, which is perceived as a threat to the Singaporean way of life. For context, non-Singaporeans comprise 40% of the entire population, which makes Singapore number 22 on the list of countries with a high foreigner-to-local ratio. In the online space, the discomfort translates to full-blown hate, along the same social prejudices, exacerbated by a political climate where the authorities are viewed as partial to foreigners while being uncaring of local sentiment. This isn't the effect of a vocal minority. The trend is institutionally recognized. A few months ago, I participated in a workshop by a social enterprise tied with the Ministry of Culture, Communication and Youth to understand the issues of integration, or rather the lack of it, between Singaporeans and foreigners. The stories I heard from the foreigners present were insightful and points to a much larger issue than a lot of people believe. I also sounded out my friends, both in surveys and in long conversations over the last couple of months, asking about their takes on local xenophobia and the general Singaporean-foreigner divide. Some interesting trends emerge. I think that there's a section of the population that comes across as extremely xenophobic. Although it is a minority and it doesn't translate into anything that is controversial. At the same time, I would like to say that uh, the xenophobia in Singapore has been also a consequence of political decisions that has been made uh, by the people in charge. You know, this reminded me of an, an a story a friend of mine shared not too long ago, and then she's left Singapore now. She's a Taiwanese Canadian, so it's Canadian by nationality, but Thai Taiwanese by ethnicity. She lived in Singapore for about three years or so. And one day, she, a, fr a good friend of hers from the Americas came to visit her, and they took the MRT from one station to another station. So within that short period of time, she was speaking Chinese to her American friend because they both lived in China before. An elderly lady standing next to them started scolding them and say, you know, you should go back to China. You should go back to where you come from. You shouldn't be here. And even though she was Taiwanese and clearly her accent isn't 
you know, chi- mainland China accent. She was just stunned and flabbergasted that even though she looks like a local, she's still being treated that way. I mean, from a high level, my understanding of it, uh, Singapore was going through an immigration kind of crisis where the infrastructure wasn't ready. People were freaking out about the number of immigrants at that time. And I feel like I got the brunt of that uh, when I was living here. I think now this is eight years later and largely a lot of the, the what's it, kind of maybe the fear associated with that has dissipated. So it's, it's no longer a factor. compare it and I've never come across any other place that was more in your face and more open with it not only that every single person know knows here where their ranks are in the eyes of the other race but also stuff like a real estate agent can ask people about your color um, about when you're Indian how dark is your shade and stuff like this that you know that stuff would be illegal in other places so not only do I find it's very it's it's present but it's also such a daily and common and almost respected and okay thing and that blows me away. After having taken all of these into account, I've identified five major reasons why there is a discomfort of foreigners in Singapore. Number one, culture clash. This is the most obvious aspects of the local discomfort. In the first episode of the series, I talked about how immigration in Singapore ramped up from the 1980s and how locals have grumbled about the increasing presence of foreigners from the 1990s itself. This is a complaint as old as time. People fear displacement. People fear change. People fear people who don't look like them or behave like them or look for ways to categorize the new group as an other. But there's also the immediate cultural conflicts that come with people from different walks of life sharing the island, which have made locals uncomfortable. The everyday frictions around cultural misunderstandings have been taking the spotlight with increasing frequency, and local Singaporeans feel like they're often out of depth in trying to deal with these situations. Things get complicated when this happens way too often, and it has. The willingness of foreigners to integrate is inversely proportional to how many there are. With a population of 1.7 foreigners that comprise 40% of the total of the island, the need to integrate becomes optional, even unnecessary. Most foreigners do integrate, don't get me wrong, but the number of foreigners who prefer cloistered bubbles are on the rise, and admittedly, Singapore is a conducive environment for such bubbles. Over the decades of a growing foreigner population, locals experience apprehension and a deep discomfort with the continual microaggressions around interactions with foreigners and also the growing divide between the social bubbles. Empathy has fallen through the rifts. Quarrels with foreigners, frustrations with miscommunication at work owing to cultural differences, and a general difficulty in reaching out and empathizing with other groups and communities All of these have brought about confusion, resentment, and anger among Singaporeans. Foreigners, from particular communities especially, are seen as difficult to deal with and unwilling to integrate. The perceived lack of integration has become a key gripe among Singaporeans, who feel that a lot of foreigners are not doing enough to understand local norms or even be part of local society. 
Unfortunate incidents like the Little India Riots in 2013 cemented the notion that certain communities are simply culturally incompatible with Singaporean sensibilities, even while the underlying reasons were more than just cultural. These have gradually built up narratives around different kinds of people. And this brings us to the next point, which is... Number two, cultural stereotyping and normalized discrimination. Singapore is a cosmopolitan city where people from all over the world live and work. Being a cosmopolitan society where there's a fair bit of intermixing among different communities, cultural stereotyping becomes an everyday aspect of life. There's the initial appraisal of who you are based on stereotypes around your origins, and that's unsurprising, but personally, I find these stereotypes to persist longer than usual here. Is it a problem? It's a little complicated because stereotyping is something we all do. It's a shorthand for understanding patterns and acting upon them. I find that Singaporeans are very comfortable with stereotyping based on nationality and race because it has worked for them for decades. The understanding is that most people are products of their cultural upbringing and the people around them and nothing more. I feel like a lot of folks here don't account for the mobility a person has in defining who he or she is. I could be wrong, but people here are more comfortable defining you by superficial attributes instead of you as a person. Now normally, I'm not against stereotyping. Like I said, it's something we all do. But there's something to be said about making informed decisions, and when you make a decision around stereotypes, there's a certain responsibility to validate it first. A long time ago, an Indian colleague admitted to feeling hurt when her team went for hot pot, after hours without her. When she asked about it, her team basically assumed that being Indian, she wouldn't have wanted to join. And so they made the decision to exclude her. This may not have been with bad intentions, but she was excluded from this team activity simply because of a prevailing stereotype that Indians are picky about food outside their own. And on top of that, they didn't run this by her first. This is the key part. A decision was made without re-evaluating the situation. She was always included in future meals, but often with a jocular response about how they didn't want her to cry about not being included. She wasn't happy with the insinuation that she was being difficult when it was in fact her team's mistake for not including her, but she didn't want to die on that hill. She didn't harbor any resentment around it, but she wished she had the nerve and the ability to explain to her team why it was insensitive. This is a fine example that illustrates the problem with cultural stereotyping. It's so easy to rely on it as a crutch and not question it. Problems arise when bad decisions are made because of a lazy stereotype. Unfortunately, in Singapore, a sizable compendium of cultural stereotypes are acknowledged as truth and are rarely challenged. People are excessively reliant on these stereotypes, which results in biased decisions. Anecdotes around foreigners exhibiting bad behavior are deemed as representative of the group as a whole. These stereotypes are popular favorites in online circles, shared, echoed, and played up until it becomes hard-coded truth. There's also the uncomfortable reality of Singapore's obsession with race. The cultural stereotyping is very much along the lines of ethnic origin and more often than not on race. And there's a reason for it. Singapore's society, governance, and history have been centered around race for so long it has become the de facto marker of identity here. A lot of foreigners I know have expressed their surprise at the continual reference to race in everything, whether it's positive or negative. It takes some getting used to. 
I've noticed so many times that in a conversation about some news around crime or a story around somebody doing dumb shit, Singaporeans more often than not ask for the person's race or origin. It serves as a key bit of information for them to make sense of the story. Affirmations of stereotypes are enforced this way. It's so curious to see how much nationality and race are relied on like crutches to understand people in Singapore. It has made sense for generations of Singaporeans, but in a changing world of global exposure and evolving science around social behaviors, these crutches are showing their age and are revealing the cognitive laziness that created them in the first place. Is cultural stereotyping wrong? Not really, but the excessive reliance on it is not kind. The most egregious example of this is the rampant discrimination practiced in Singapore when renting an apartment. Ads openly ref refusing tenants from India and mainland China were extremely prevalent when I first arrived here in 2011, and to be honest, nine years later, nothing much has changed. While there is a lot of policing in what words are used in ads nowadays, the discrimination is openly practiced even today. Looking for a house in the last year, eight times out of ten, I've been told that I can't rent an apartment because I'm Indian. In fact, the rental website 99.co allows you to filter apartment listings based on whether all races are welcome. The filter is actually called All Races Welcome. When I checked for whole apartment listings, both HDBs and condos, in August 2019, out of 25,000 ads, only 20% were willing to accept tenants of all races. It's a smack in the face to Singapore's brand of effective multiculturalism and racial harmony that is much touted here by both government and society at large. Most developed countries have laws against this brought around by ground-level activism decrying these discriminatory practices. In Singapore, though, it's a non-issue. For one, 80% of Singaporeans live in their own homes and so they often don't encounter or even understand the issues that plague the housing rental markets. The result is a very normalized process of discrimination which is aggressively justified by local landowners, relying on stereotypes that tenants of a certain kind are undesirable or not house-proud, and that housing investments must be protected by refusing certain communities' access. Number 3. Classism and Singaporean Exceptionalism In the first episode, I talked briefly about the controversy around the Philippines' Independence Day celebrations. I want to cover this in some more detail. In April 2014, a celebration of Philippines' Independence Day by the overseas Filipino community was cancelled in the wake of extreme hate online. Their event pages were inundated with vile language and hateful cries to shut the event down, and devolved into hate speech against Filipinos living in Singapore. The outrage was directed at three things that the celebration of another country's Independence Day on foreign soil is a challenge to Singapore's sovereignty. Number two, that the Facebook banner had the Marina Bay Sands in its design. And number three, that the event description used words like holding hands and interdependence. It's important to note the timing of it all. Overseas communities in Singapore have celebrated their national days in various forms in various places in Singapore for years, and the Philippine Association themselves have done so for 20 years. The difference this time around was that the growing xenophobic sentiment became mainstream, and right after the white paper protest of 2013, people were out for blood. 
The online hate campaign was by a nationalist Facebook page called Say No to an Overpopulated Singapore, which started the year before to express their admittedly justified unhappiness with the Population White Paper of 2013. It went on to become a breeding ground for hateful rhetoric against foreigners, and the Philippines Independence Day celebration event became a target of this hate. This wasn't some fringe occurrence. Members of parliament, ministers, and the prime minister himself had to publicly denounce the hate on social media. Having seen this controversy unfold in real time, some things were very clear. The online rage was primarily at the audacity of Filipinos using the Marina Bay Sands the banner design, which was seen as an undeserved appropriation of a local symbol. What's worse was the vitriol around the use of the word interdependence and holding hands. If I were to paraphrase the gist of all the verbiage of that time, it's this. How dare the Filipinos insinuate that they were on the same level as Singaporeans, and how dare they try to elevate themselves by calling the national relationships between the two countries as one of interdependence? This was the kind of rhetoric that's obviously not very knowledgeable of how international diplomacy works, and was more reliant on ground-level perceptions of Filipino people, the stereotype being that they're maids, low-wage employees, and generally third-world people from a third-world country. Which brings us to the classist overtones of the general Singaporean worldview. Since its meteoric rise as a first world country in just a few decades, Singapore has been lauded as a success story of overcoming the odds to become what it is today. It's something Singaporeans are very proud of, and rightfully so. It's a testament to strong leadership and strategic planning. From third world to first world is a catchphrase often used in the Singaporean context and was incidentally the title for one of Lee Kuan Yew's memoirs. What this has given rise to is a certain exceptionalism. I'm sure we've all heard of American exceptionalism. There's something similar in Singapore too. With standards of living much higher than the region, a strong currency and constant marketing around the gold-plated excellence of its institutions from education to aviation and everything in between, the success and the superiority of the Singapore model has been internalized in the local psyche. And much like American exceptionalism, it has allowed condescension to creep in, a condescension towards the third world countries around and which progressively extended to the people from these countries. Tommy Koh, a Singaporean professor, diplomat, and prominent figure in public speaking, has consistently talked about Singapore being a first world country with a third world people every time there's an instance of social dumbassery in the country. It's an opinion shared by a lot of Singaporeans, and I know it's supposed to be self-criticism and it's supposed to be a call to be a more gracious society, but it's also very indicative of the prevalence of the notion that a person from a third world country isn't just classified as economically challenged, but also morally deficient. I'm painting this picture for context because over the last two decades, there has been a rapid increase of a skilled professional class from growing economies like the Philippines, India, and Vietnam. Their growing presence across the region, Singapore included, has signaled a shift in the more traditional stereotypes around these people. It's a shift many locals weren't comfortable with as it posed a direct challenge to the exceptionalist ideals they grew up with. Highly paid foreigners from developing countries have consistently been doubted on their credentials, their abilities, and their motives, spawning from a widely shared belief that foreigners from third world countries are unfairly getting the highly paid jobs when Singaporean education and skills are clearly superior. Admittedly, the dynamics are more complex than that. 
involving a few high-profile incidents of fake credentials, the overall depression of wages because of the influx of foreigners, scummy hiring practices, and the capitalist machinery that determines a lot of the rules in this country. I bring up exceptionalism because it kind of explains why sections of society like the migrant workers and domestic maids are deemed as essential despite the reigning belief that foreigners are universally bad for Singapore. There is some credence to the idea that the presence of foreigners is tolerated as long as they stay within their lane, so to speak, providing for essential services, driving the cogs of the economic machine, and staying out of regular Singaporean discourse. But the growing class of skilled professionals since the 1990s were a conspicuous intrusion into the rat race, jostling for a stake in the same aspirational goals Singaporeans are pursuing. Local conversations of the lifestyles of expats from developed countries were tinged with streaks of envy over how they were getting preferential treatment, while those of expats from developing countries had undertones of contempt. Number 4. Misinformation Misinformation is one of the biggest challenge Singaporean society is facing today, and is the primary driver of xenophobia and hate. Yes, it's a problem worldwide. Weaponized disinformation campaigns have fomented hate, swayed elections, and have triggered pogroms in so many countries, in the last decade alone. In Singapore, misinformation has an extra edge and Singaporeans are especially susceptible to it because of some very specific social and political factors. It's a widely held belief in Singapore that the state media is pro-government and doesn't necessarily espouse free speech. There is some validity to these claims. Lee Kuan Yew set this precedent in the formative years of Singapore, openly disdainful of media that questioned leadership. He was of the firm belief that this Western-style journalistic approach wasn't in Singapore's best interests. In his opinion, national media was to serve as the voice of the government and aid in nation-building. Incidents of lawsuits over the decades and the culture of fear built around voicing opinions over controversial topics shaped the tone of national media, who are often criticized for being too sanitized and milquetoast. Society grew to accept such narratives, while at the same time yearning for the liberty to express opinions that weren't always pro-establishment. Those desires were a luxury limited to coffee shop talk. The internet changed all of this. From the 1990s, Usenet groups like soc.culture.singapore and Sintercom became exactly the outlets Singaporeans needed to express unfiltered opinions and critical commentary on the state without fear of censorship. These were the first citizen-initiated groups that tested the boundaries of political discourse. And unfortunately, the tests went too far and they were shut down years later by the authorities on various pretexts, but with the unmistakable aura of political control that deemed such free speech unacceptable. But the thing about the internet is, when one forum dies, three others spring up and take its place. The internet and alternative online forums grew in fame and respect as beacons of civil society and bastions of free speech more than any national broadsheet. These forums weren't known for their journalistic integrity or their commitment to factual reporting, but Singaporean internet users didn't care about that. They wanted anything other than state media narratives. These forums got credibility and legitimacy when pictures of a 10,000-strong rally by an opposition party in 2006 were resolutely absent from state newspapers but were being shared in these user forums. 
This part is relevant because a lot of Singaporeans now started trusting these alternative online forums, journalistic integrity be damned, because national media didn't look like they were practicing it either. These online groups represented the voices on the ground more than state media ever did. Also, in the absence of on-the-ground activism, the internet proved to be a fertile ground for protests and making grievances heard. Which brings us to present day. Community forums have flourished on the fringes of, me of the media landscape and have unfortunately become hotbeds of xenophobia, fueled by anecdote after anecdote of foreigners fucking it up and disrespecting Singapore. The veracity of these accounts is often questionable and they're often exaggerated, but at this point, after decades of latent discomfort over foreigners, the truth doesn't matter anymore. The villainy of the foreigner is now so entrenched in the Singaporean psyche that no amount of corrections are going to change that. Misinformation around the number of foreigners has also muddied the waters. The oft-quoted number of 6.9 million, which is the projected population for 2030 in the notorious white paper of 2013, is freely applied to present day and certain community numbers are exaggerated constantly. Millions of Indians, millions of mainland Chinese, millions of Filipinos have been accused of squeezing out the locals from their own country. When in reality, the largest foreigner population by a large margin is actually Malaysian. Thanks to strong historical and cultural ties, this group flies under the radar of xenophobic vitriol, while the rest get the brunt of it. There have been demands from the public to provide exact numbers of foreigners living in Singapore, and specifically by nationality, and the breakdown of professional jobs given to foreigners. The stonewall response of the government only served to reinforce the notion that the government had something to hide and that the government didn't want to reveal that Singaporeans are indeed being shafted by the seemingly foreigner-friendly policies. For the last year and a half, I have been lurking on these community forums to understand their sentiments on the presence of foreigners in Singapore. And the torrent of misinformation and the willful misinterpretation of news to fit pre-existing biases is staggering. The decades of frustrations, the willingness to believe in established stereotypes, and the rapid-fire nature of commentary has built a narrative of fear that foreigners are taking over Singapore. I've often been told that these are the voices of a loud minority, but I would respectfully disagree. Unsavory lingo to describe foreigners which were specific to certain internet communities have bled into general social media, and its frequency in any public discussion points to widespread acceptance of these terms and these beliefs. In fact, these terms, these beliefs, and the frustrations online have been creeping into any discussion about expats and even in expat forums, to the point where a lot of expat Facebook groups have been set to private only. Take Seca, for example. In the first episode, I briefly alluded to a trade agreement made between India and Singapore called the Comprehensive Economic Cooperation Agreement, or SECA in short, which was one of the many free trade agreements Singapore had with different countries. A lot of it is fairly boilerplate stuff, and discussions around SECA were limited to trade and financial circles and wasn't exactly something of interest in the public eye. Until 2013. Hot on the heels of the white paper protest, prominent activist Roy Ngurng reported the existence of the SECA agreement and highlighted one particular clause about the movement of professionals between the two countries. 
this bit of legalese was picked up by the populist social media pages who cited the agreement as the reason for the rising number of Indian citizens in the country, and the crowds went wild. A narrative took hold that the Singaporean government was welcoming Indians by the droves and letting them take all the jobs at the expense of locals. Lee Sin Lung has been nicknamed Seka Lee, among other less flattering nicknames, and was seen as pandering to Indian interests more than Singaporean. Seka is now a pejorative term used for Indian nationals, popularized by one of the more toxic forums EDMW, and this, for, this term has rapidly gained acceptance in mainstream conversation. The influence of said forum in pushing xenophobic and hateful rhetoric built on misinformation cannot be understated. Number 5. Disenfranchisement if you've been on local internet circles long enough, you'll have seen this phrase during the rounds. Jobs for FTs, NS for Sinkies. It's an allusion to something that a lot of Singaporeans feel, that locals are at a disadvantage over foreigners, that being a foreigner in Singapore is a blessing while being a citizen is a burden. To explain this, we need to go back a few decades. In the first episode, I talked about the foreign talent policy starting from the 1980s to bring in skilled expats, the foreign sports talent scheme to bring in skilled athletes, and the global schoolhouse policies to bring in foreign students. The grand vision was to grow Singapore as a hub of excellence in industry, sport, and education. The folks brought in this way were called foreign talent. Back then, there was the implication that foreigners brought in were talent, aka they were here to bring value to the table and further Singapore's goals. Since the 1990s, Singaporeans have highlighted anecdotes of foreigners not doing their part, so to speak. Complaints surfaced when a local student wrote into the Straits Times, saying that his foreign peers were being given scholarships when he felt he was weren't serving. The public played up the third world origins of the foreign students, asking why Singaporean students were being shafted. Also around this time, complaints about importing sports talent from elsewhere featured on the letters to Straits Times, asking why Singaporeans should feel proud about the country's sports achievements when the government was buying talent rather than honing talent locally. In the first episode of this podcast series, I covered some of the popular outrage around how some students were seen breaking scholarship bonds, and how one sports person said she didn't feel Singaporean and that she always felt Chinese. These incidents added to the growing resentment that the foreign talent were breaking the social contracts that brought them here, that they weren't invested in Singapore's growth and prosperity, that they would jump ship as soon as better opportunities presented themselves, and therefore were undeserving of the government's assistance. This gave rise to the notion that foreigners were using Singapore as a stepping stone, a so-called halfway point for foreigners from developing countries to establish themselves financially and obtain passports, which would then allowed them to migrate to other developed countries. The belief that foreigners are only here to take advantage of Singapore became so entrenched that a survey in 2018 found that more than 50% of young Singaporeans believed that foreigners were using the country as a stepping stone. Instances of arrogant foreigners have been propped up in online forums and social media to reinforce the idea that foreigners just don't care for Singapore and that the government is making a mistake bringing them in. The term foreign talent has taken on a more negative connotation, highlighting the irony of calling these foreigners talent. The acronym FT got a more colorful interpretation, foreign trash, and is being used liberally on the internet now. The fact is, Singaporeans feel disenfranchised. They feel betrayed. 
social mobility has slowed down since the 1980s and the quality of life that was easily attainable in previous generations is not so attainable now. HDB prices have skyrocketed, income inequality is rising, and all of this is happening in the background of the government constantly messaging that they want to be a global city and that foreigners are important to growing the economy and that they are the key to sustained growth and prosperity. For a lot of Singaporeans who are struggling in the system, the optics aren't good. Foreigners are seemingly welcomed in with a red carpet and are seen as living lives of affluence, while locals are struggling to deal with housing costs and overbearing government paternalism around various social policies. Most locals feel that the level of granular control the government exercises in Singaporean lives isn't applied to foreigners. Citizens are burdened with national service and mandated to part with 20% of their income to CPF, while at the same time they see foreigners being able to join the workforce earlier, accrue experience faster, get paid higher, and also keep the 20% of their income. Foreigners are supposedly enjoying freedoms that Singaporeans feel they don't have. I've been told a number of times that I apparently have it good in Singapore because I don't pay for CPF, and that I don't pay taxes as a foreigner. Yes, I do pay taxes as a foreigner, folks. I feel a significant number of people think that foreigners are freeloading and not giving back as compared to what they're getting from Singapore. Thanks to the decades of government messaging around the benefits of foreigners in Singapore, foreigners are often believed to enjoy preferential treatment and that they get away with infractions of the law while locals get arrested sooner and sentenced more severely. Recent incidents have shown that a large chunk of the local population sincerely believes that the law is being applied differently between locals and foreigners in favor of the latter. The phrase NS for Sinkies, jobs for FTs makes more sense now. Singaporeans are bemoaning their loss of agency, that they have to sacrifice so much when the outsiders don't. They feel betrayed that the authorities are not looking out for them. They feel frustrated that the ruling government cares more about economic progress than social welfare. And they feel angry, very, very angry, that the affluent foreigners aren't sharing the burdens of living life in Singapore as Singaporeans do. And this concludes part two of the series Understanding Xenophobia in Singapore. I hope I've given you a more comprehensive picture of the discomfort of foreigners here in Singapore and the reasons why things are the way they are. I have tried to be as fair as I could and I will be citing sources in the podcast website so check it out for additional reading. If you have questions about this episode or if you feel that I have missed out or misrepresented anything, please let me know on social media or send me a DM. I would love to have a chat with you about it. Okay, so the next episode is part three, which is the last episode of the series, and I will be talking about how foreigners should deal with the xenophobia in Singapore, how to navigate through a lot of the local frustration that's been popping up with increasing frequency, and hopefully some tips on how to live life with peace of mind. Fortunately, it's going to be much shorter, so that's something you can look forward to. All right, so that's all for me for now, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I've had making it. It has admittedly been a struggle tackling this topic, but I'm glad that I have. Thank you for your patience and your attention and your love. And on that note, this is Rindo, and you've been listening to Living It Up in Lion City.